Well, we're continuing this morning in some of the parts of Scripture that you probably don't read very much. So last week, we talked about the law. We talked about Exodus the 21 to 24, and today we talk about the tabernacle. And I, I began last time by talking about, like, you're reading through the Bible, and you start in Genesis 1, and you got all these cool stories, and then you hit Exodus 20, and it's like, oh my goodness, what happened? And you work your way through those laws with lots of questions, and then you get to Exodus chapter 25, and it changes, and, and God talks to Moses, or the Lord talks to Moses about building instructions. <laughs> so it changes, but maybe not for the better for most of us as we read this. Um, I don't know about you, I'm not good at reading this and, and picturing it. Like, I, I read the descriptions, and they're using measurements that I have no concept of, two and a half cubits, a cubit here, a shekel there. It's like, what's a cubit? And I know you can look it up, and you can find it, and in my, it says about three and three-quarter feet long is two cubit, two and a half cubits, and it's like, but I just can't do it. I can't read this and get a picture in my head. I need help with that. Um, and even then, even when I have help, so you can look up pictures. You might have a study Bible that has what we think it may have looked like. Nobody knows exactly because the descriptions give you measurements and dimensions and, and they give you instructions like so cherubim into the curtain, but we don't know what those cherubim looked like. Um, for example, right? And so you can guess, but you can't know for sure. But even once you've looked it up, it's like, okay, I saw the picture. Now I'm going to skip all these chapters, and I'm going to get to where the story continues again. That's the temptation. But just like with the law, there's actually a lot going on here that's really good. And there's a lot that we can learn from this section if we're willing to give it the time, and if we recognize what's going on in these passages, now, there's more than one passage that talks about a building in quite a bit of detail in Scripture. So there's this one in Exodus, um, and then later on in Exodus, they go through it all again when they actually build the tabernacle. So here we get the instructions, and in the 30s, we find out that they obeyed the instructions, but they're all repeated because it says, and they built it this length with this material according to the instructions. Uh, they do the same thing when they build the temple. You get all these instructions. And then the prophets start picking up on this. So if you read the prophet Ezekiel, for example, there are a number of chapters in there that talk about the new Jerusalem, the heavenly temple that is to come with exactly the same kind of detail, all these measurements and materials and images and pictures. Um, so this is throughout Scripture. You turn to the book of Revelation, you're going to find it again. Why? Why do they repeat this? Why do they feel the need? There's a reason, okay? This is one of the things we got to remember when we read the Bible, is that this is written in a time without all of our technology, when writing something down is time-consuming and costly, right? And when your scroll gets that much longer because you decided to include all of these detailed descriptions of the commandments on how to build the ark and the table and the lampstand and the curtains and all of these different things... You put it in there because you thought it mattered, right? You didn't just put it like, ah, oh, we needed to fill some space. They never had that need. I don't know if you remember writing essays as a child and you're supposed to hit a thousand words and you get to like 800 and you start trying to figure out like, or maybe it's pages, so you make the margins a little bit bigger and you up the font size, right? You got to get it up to that length. They didn't have that problem. They weren't looking here and thinking, well, my scroll is six feet long, and I've only filled five of it, so let's see what else we can find to put in here, right? Um, so it matters. 
And, and the core theme, when you hit buildings like this in Scripture, or at least one of the core themes, is the desire of God to dwell with his people. And you may have heard that come up several times as we've been walking through the Exodus, that God wants to be with us, and he wants us to enter into his presence. And this is no small thing to say, that God longs to live with, to dwell with, to be with his people. It's huge. It's completely different than the worldview of all the cultures around them, and most of the cultures today, too, where the idea is that if you want to be with God, you've got to earn it, you've got to entice him, you've got to pay for it, you've got to get lucky, right? Like, just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Whereas the picture of Yahweh, the Lord of all creation, is that we are his children, and he wants that, and he's the one who initiates it, and he's the one who makes it possible, and he's the one who comes first. And that's the whole story of the Exodus. They're, they're in slavery, and he comes and rescues them. Now, part of the story, though, is that all along the way, things get in the way. So you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and God's created this beautiful place for his children to live, and he walks with them, right? And, he, and he's with them, and he speaks with them, and then they sin, and they take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, and they break fellowship with God, and he has to remove them from the garden. He has to remove them from fellowship, and sin breaks that relationship. And ever since then, God is working to restore it, but at every step of the way, there's still stuff. And so as we've been reading through the Exodus, the first thing that's in the way is the slavery, right? And so God calls them out of Egypt, and he says to Pharaoh, he says, you have to let my people go so they can come and worship me. They're not free to be in the presence of God and to worship him and to fellowship with him. And so God deals with this. He deals with this barrier, right? And we walked through that story. God makes a way. That's what he does. And they, they head out into the wilderness. It is. It's amen. That is who he is. It's awesome. Um, they head into the wilderness, and the people don't know God yet. And they start facing all these different troubles. There's water they can't drink, and they don't have food, and there's enemies they can't defeat. And God again and again and again, he comes and he shows them who he is. And he says, I will make a way, and I will save you, and I will rescue you, and I will provide for you. And, and he's teaching them who he is so that they can be together. And they finally get to Mount Sinai, and God has promised from the very beginning, I'm going to bring your people, this people, my people, to this mountain, and I will meet with them there just as I met with you, Moses. And he gives them this consecration process. They've got to spend three days making themselves pure so that they can come up to the mountain and be with God. And when the time finally comes, the people draw back in fear. They say, we, we, we can't handle this. Moses, you go up. You talk to God for us. We'll listen to you, but don't make us go up on that mountain. Right? And it's another problem. And that's the way the narrative presents it is that God has wanted them to be with him. And when the moment finally comes, all the external obstacles have been removed, but their hearts are not ready, and they draw back in fear. God doesn't give up, though. And so God keeps making a way. And what we see in the tabernacle is that next step of God making a way. And, and the way, the method that he's using is completely changed because the problem that they're facing is completely different. They're not facing an external problem. 
a pharaoh who has them enslaved, a sea they can't cross, water they can't drink. They're facing an internal problem. And the way that God overcomes an internal problem is usually slowly and patiently and graciously and gently, right? And so he says, effectively, all right, you weren't ready for what I wanted, so we're going to put in place this tabernacle. And this will be, and the other name for this, that we call it a tabernacle, but in Hebrew there's two words used, and one of them is the general word for dwelling place, because God will dwell among his people, and the other one is the title, the tent of meeting is the place where they will meet and the people will enter into his presence. And so that's at the heart of this passage and each passage you find in Scripture. You find at the end of the book of Revelation this description of the heavenly city. Why is that? Because he's describing the moment when God again dwells with his people, right? Same thing with the temple that Solomon builds. It's God who's going to dwell in this city, in the city of Jerusalem. And so you get this long description. Same thing in Ezekiel. Um, with this long description of the, the temple to come. It's looking forward to the presence of God in, in his fullness again. And within that, as we look at that, as we recognize that as the overarching theme, we can see a ton of other meaning that builds into and, and illuminates that for us. And so that's what we're going to walk through this morning. We're going to do it in three parts because the tabernacle, and I'll use my fingers to show you how this works because it's one sentence. The tabernacle is from all the people, of the holy God of all creation, and for all the world. So that's the three points we're going to walk through, how the tabernacle is from all the people and what that means and what that teaches us, how the tabernacle is of the holy God of all creation, and again, what that means and what that teaches us, and how the tabernacle is for all the world. And what we'll see in each of these cases is that the tabernacle and the events that go on around its building and the instructions for its, for its construction are both practical and symbolic. At every level, they work in both ways, and you'll see what I mean in a minute. So to, to start off, though, we're going to read together the first nine verses of this section, Exodus 25, verses 1 to 9. So if you have your Bibles or your phones and you like to have it in front of you, go for it. It's going to be on the screen. I'm going to ask us to please stand together in honor of the Word of God, be a part of this reading. So Exodus 25, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that you long to dwell with us. Teach us who you are and what that means and how we can enter your presence, Lord God, and draw us to you just as you draw the nation of Israel. Again and again, we ask that you make a way for us as a church and for each of us individually, Lord, and that we would follow your way. Pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. 
So we just read one small section, right? Because the building of the tabernacle and the consecration of the priesthood and their instructions, it takes six chapters, seven actually, I think. Um, and we can't read all of that this morning. So if you have been walking along with us in this series, one of the things that I've said and that we've posted on Facebook is that the best thing you can do is read the chapters ahead of time so that you come knowing more of what I'm talking about. Um, I'll try to make it clear as we go, but there's so many details in the description of the construction that I can't do all of them, and that's okay. It's the same as with the laws. I couldn't say everything there was possibly to be said, or we'd be here all day and more. And I just can't keep all that in my head anyway, so <laughs> I don't remember it all. I know, crazy. You should see the books people write about this stuff. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so we read the first nine verses. Now, this is all the instructions. This is not a record of what happens when they actually go to build this. That's after. That's Exodus 35 and onwards to the end. Um, but how it's going to start is with an offering. They're going to go to the people, and they're going to say, God has commanded us to build this tabernacle, and we need stuff to do that. And that's the immediate practical purpose of how this begins. They need things, and they need lots of them. If you've read the descriptions here about what's going on, the lampstand and what goes with it requires one, oh, what's the word? Um, one talent of pure gold. That's somewhere between 80 and 100 pounds of pure gold just for the lampstand and the things that go with it, right? Not, not counting the other things that are made out of gold or overlaid with gold and the silver and the gemstones and the onyx and all of that other kind of stuff. So they need material wealth. And apparently, they've got it. Um, when they left, they were told to ask all their Egyptian neighbors to give them things as they go, and they have enough that they build this and to spare. Moses actually has to say, okay, we have it, we have good, we're good, stop giving us things we can't use anymore. And when they go to actually do this and they take the offering for real, so many people's hearts prompt them to give that they have to say, stop. <laughs> we have enough for what we need to do. Um, and so the tabernacle comes from all of the people. The same is true in Exodus chapter 30, after they've laid out, after God has laid out all of the ceremonies that are going to go on here, um, it's clear that they're going to need a daily supply of oil for the lamps, and of, um, I feel like I'm echoing, if there's something I have to do to change that, let me know, um, oil for the lamps, and um, incense for the fragrant offering, and bread for the table of fellowship, they're going to need these things every day, and so God says, take a census of all of Israel, and all of the people who are of age have to give a half shekel every year, rich or poor, no matter what their status is, Everybody has to give a half shekel. Again, practically speaking, this supplies for the ongoing materials for the running of the tabernacle. They're going to have to keep buying oil and keep making bread and keep getting all of the different spices they use in the fragrant incense offering. And so the people provide for this. And so the practical for the tabernacle is the offering from all the people makes it possible. The practical for the people, however, it also serves a practical purpose for the people because it gives them an opportunity and a command to invest in the dwelling place of the Lord, to make it actually of them as well as of God. And we'll talk about the of God in a few minutes. And this is important not because 
God doesn't come to dwell with us if we don't give, okay? It's important because of human nature. We pay attention to the things we invest in. That's just a fact. Really practical example. You, you make a garden. You, you create a flower bread. And you work to make that soil ready. And you choose the arrangement of flowers. And you plant those seeds. And you tend them. And you water them. And when they bloom, you're paying attention. Because you have invested in those things. And they matter to you. If a flower just pops up beside your house, you may or may not even notice. You certainly aren't going to care a lot, right? It could be exactly the same flower, but because you haven't invested in it, it's not, it's not a thing to you. It doesn't matter, right? And here's the truth. God is around us all the time. He's always with us. He's ever-present everywhere, but we're usually not paying attention. In the same way that when that flower just randomly pops up near your house, you're not paying attention. By investing, by having a place in this process, the people are being invited to pay attention both to the specific thing they've invested in, the tabernacle and its creation and ongoing working, but also in the purpose thereof, in meeting with God, both in that place and throughout their days. We're meant to be drawn into that. These things also, however, serve symbolic purposes. By being asked to give to the making of the temple, they're being reminded that everything they have, that incredible wealth that they could find, 100 pounds of gold for the lampstand and all the things that go with it, it was all a gracious gift of God, a miracle as they left Egypt. Right? It's, to, it's reminding them that everything they have is his, not theirs, and they wouldn't have any of it if it wasn't for him. The offering for the, the regular workings, that half shekel every year, this too is very symbolic, and it's directly in the text. So when it comes to the offering at the beginning that we read, it's the practical purpose that's at the forefront and the symbolic that's in the background. When it comes to the half shekel, they flip it around, and it's the symbolic that the scripture puts at the forefront and the practical that's in the background. Because what it says is every year you need to take this half shekel offering as a ransom for the lives of all adult Israelites. What does that mean? It means that they all owe God their lives. Every single one of them was equally in need of rescue from the power of Egypt. And every single one of them was rescued purely by the power of God. And they are His. It also communicates the fact that they are all equally valued. It's not a half shekel from the poor and a half talent from the rich. It's a half shekel from everybody because it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor or what your status is. God loved each of us, right? And so this is what it means to say that the tabernacle is of all of the people. And I want to I point out what I, what I hope you're already thinking, which is that all of those lessons, they still apply today. We are still called to give. And that giving serves those same practical and symbolic purposes. We can't run the, Christy said this, we can't run the church without the giving, right? Like, that's just practical reality. We have to pay for the electricity and the heating and the building rentals and salaries and all this other kind of stuff. Um, but in giving, you are being invited to pay attention, both to the workings of this church. This church should matter to you, right? But also to meeting with God throughout your week, day in and day out. You are being reminded, all of us, I shouldn't just be saying you, me too, we are being reminded that everything we have is a gift of God. 
and that we owe our very selves to him, and that he loves us and values us all, not me more or me less, right? No matter how you feel about that, because our emotions can lie to us about those things, or we can feel like I'm not as valuable. That's a lie. We all matter deeply to God. Now, as the people are being invited to take part and to make the tabernacle a thing that is of the people, all of the people of God, they are immediately called to recognize who it is they will be meeting with. And that's why we can say that the tabernacle is from the holy God of all creation. Um, Again, this is both practical and symbolic. Practically speaking, God gives them all the instructions. Like, it's from God, very literally, God tells them exactly the plan. He gives them the blueprint. Um, He also gives them the skill. So later on, it talks about two craftsmen, two skilled craftsmen, Bezalel and Aholiab. And God fills them with his spirit to gift them even further. They're already skilled, but now they become gifted to do the work and to lead others in doing the work, to train a crew of craftsmen so that they can actually build this tabernacle. So it's a spirit-invested building opportunity. This is the first time in Scripture the Holy Spirit is described as working this way, right? And this is picked up a ton in the, Old, in the New Testament. Paul writes about this. Paul picks up on all of these things, by the way. We're going to see that as we get to the application at the end. Um, he very clearly, especially in 1 Corinthians, he's been reading the Exodus story. It's all over the place. Um, because what is the Holy Spirit doing here? He is gifting the people of God for the work of God. And he is gifting them in such a way that their job with that gift is to train others. You read Paul, this is exactly what he talks about with the Holy Spirit. That he's called some people to be pastors and evangelists and apostles and so on. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ for the work of God, right? That's the purpose. He knows what he's talking about. He's been reading Exodus, and he's picking up on all these patterns. So in these very practical ways, the tabernacle is from God. But the symbolism is huge in the plan that is given. That's why I specifically say that it's, I don't just say it's from God, it's from the holy God of all creation. Because the symbolism of the tabernacle speaks very deeply and very clearly of God's holiness and of his presence in all of creation. So the holiness thing is built all throughout. Um, Part of the problem, the reason that the people had to go through three days of consecration before God could invite them up onto the mountain, and they never go, but they were ready, is because if God's holiness in its fullness and in, in its purity breaks out among his people, we're doomed like, we're, we're, we're hooped, we're, we're, we're sunk, we're dead, right? Like, we can't handle that. Um, it, it's kind of like, I like to imagine it as, a, as such an overpowering light that it just dissolves, because there's not enough light in us to stand in the presence of the light of God. Um, holiness, we have to remember, is always pictured as connected to life. And where we, we lose that sometimes because we feel like, yeah, but how is it connected to life if entering the presence of God means I die? Um, but that's why I like that light picture. Um, we get into trouble because we aren't full of life. We're mixed at best, 
right? And we have to be prepared to enter into God's presence. And the whole setup of the tabernacle is designed to make that possible. You've got these three layers, we're going to talk about those. You've got the Holy of Holies at the middle, where God's presence dwells, but nobody goes in there except the high priest and him only once a year with great preparation. And then you've got the kind of the second room, which is just called the holy place in Exodus, but has different names later on when they build a temple. And, um, and this is where the priests can go regularly and where they can commune with God and where they can meet with the holiness of God, but not in his fullness and bring that back out to the people. And then you have the outer court where all the people can come to be atoned for, to be sanctified and cleansed so that they can be with God. The whole thing is set up to make this possible because of God's holiness and our sin. Now within that, we see this representation of all creation. Um, G.K. Beale is one of the authors I've read on this, and he calls the tabernacle Eden remixed, like a remix of a song, right? You've got Eden, and then you've got the tabernacle. And so there's all these parallels. So let me just walk through some of these. Um, the creation narrative displays the heavens and earth as the place where God will fellowship with human beings. The tabernacle is the same. The creation account takes seven days, and each day is introduced by the phrase, and God said. The tabernacle account is given to us in seven acts, and each act is introduced by the phrase, and Yahweh said. Both the garden and the tabernacle contain the same materials, pure gold, precious jewels. Both are guarded by cherubim. So the ark, when it is built, has cherubim on either end. The curtain in front of the Holy of Holies has cherubim sewn into it because they're at the gate of Eden, are the cherubim guarding that gate. At the close of creation, we see God inspecting and evaluating all that he has made, and then keeping Sabbath. When the tabernacle is finally built, its construction is concluded with Moses inspecting all that has been made and reminding the people to observe the Sabbath, right? It's, it's intentionally paralleling all of this, and it keeps going. The design of the tabernacle reflects this as well. In Genesis 1 and 2, the whole cosmos is pictured as being made up of three parts. The tabernacle is made up of three parts. You have the Holy of Holies at the center. You have the holy place in between, and you have the outer courts on the outside. And those three layers are represented in a ton of ways. The closer you get to the center, the more valuable the materials, the more pure the materials that are being used. Um, and the architectural design also points to this fact. And so we can walk through these three and see what's going on. You've got the Holy of Holies which symbolically is the invisible dimension of the cosmos where the heavenly host and God dwell. This is the center, right? Um, and it is from here that God breaks out into his created world. And we see this in the tabernacle because what is kept in the Holy of Holies is the ark. And the ark is this box with cherubim on either side of it, and what is placed inside is a copy of the covenant. That's why it is frequently called the Ark of the Covenant. Later, at the end of the Exodus journey, they also put a jar full of manna in the, the Ark as well. And these are to remind the people of where they've come from. And wherever the Ark goes, if you think about the stories of the, the judges and the kings, wherever the Ark goes, God comes in power. They bring the Ark into battle and they win victories, right? Um, but the scripture is very clear that it is the power of God, not the power of the Ark. 
And when Israel forgets that, they lose the ark. The Philistines capture it. Because it's not magic indwelling a box. It's symbolic. And what is it symbolic of? It's symbolic of where the people will submit to the word of God, the power of God breaks forth. That's why the covenant is there, and the manna, which is the word that comes from the mouth of God, right? Which is how Exodus interprets that. Um, this is true up through all of Scripture and up to today, that where there is submission to the word of God, the kingdom breaks forth in power. That's how God works, right? And that's at the very center in the holy place. The earth was born of God's word. Right? The very first kingdom breakthrough is let there be light. And then, then you get John picking up on this when he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and he gives that word a name, it's Jesus. So you've got the holy of holies. Then you've got the inner court, or the holy place. Uh, and this is symbolic of the visible heavens with all its light. So you've got this lampstand, and the lampstand, we get this incredibly detailed description of what's going on there. And um, there's two things that are being communicated. First of all, there's seven. Why are there seven? Because there are seven visible lights in the sky in the ancient world. Five planets, the sun and the moon, right? It's the heavens. And then you read the description of the lampstand, and it's, it's branches and cups are shaped like flowers and buds and blossoms and all this kind of stuff. What's going on here? It's a stylized tree of life. Because wherever God's presence breaks forth into the world, he is light and life. This is who he is. And so it's no surprise to find in that same place, next to the lampstand, representing the lights of the heavens and the life of God breaking forth, two other things. The table for bread and the incense altar. And these two are highly symbolic. The table represents God's pursuit of fellowship with us. God wants to eat and drink with his people. When he invites Moses and the elders up to the mountain, the people won't come, but Moses and the elders still do. They eat with God. When Jesus comes to be with his people, when the incarnation occurs, he spends so much time eating and drinking with sinners that they call him a drunkard and a glutton. Right? Because God wants to fellowship with us. And so every day the priests go in and eat of the bread of the table of fellowship. The incense altar is a picture of prayer because God also wants to hear from us. He wants us to speak to him. And the idea here is that you burn this incense on the altar and the fragrance, fragrance flows into the Holy of Holies. Author of Hebrews picks this up talks about how we know our prayers enter the presence of God, and so we pray with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of help. So the holy place all points to God's presence coming into the world. He wants to pervade our lives and our community and our witness. Um, and we're supposed to do this in fellowship. And it begins to connect that idea of witness to the world with the presence of God, right? Because it's coming into all of creation. But this immediately brings us to that problem, how can a sinful people enter the presence of the holy God? And that's where the outer courts come in. This is the place where all the people come. And there we find an earthen altar, and the instructions are very clear. It's uncut stone, no stairs. It's this earthen altar next to a wash basin which gets named the sea. Why? Because the outer court is the physical, like the earth and the sea, right? You've got the stars and the heavens and the inner court, and you've got the invisible dimension and the holy of holies, and the outer court is the earth, the land and the sea, all of God's creation, 
the place where we're meant to come into the presence of God and be atoned for through the offerings on the altar and to be cleansed through the water of the sea, of the basin. It's here that that provision is made. So the tabernacle is of the holy God of all creation, and it is modeled on Eden. But what that means is that you actually flip this a little bit. The tabernacle is the model of the temple, right? It's the place where we come and worship God and be in his presence. But it's all of creation because all of creation is the temple of God. That's the picture of Genesis 1 and 2. Everything around you is meant to be an opportunity to meet with him, to worship him, to pray to him, to witness to him, to the people around you, and to call them to pay attention to the same thing. This is really cool when you start putting all this stuff together. God's throne is established through submission to God's word, the holy of holies, just as the kingdom comes through our ongoing submission to his word. Then you step into the holy place, worship, community, and prayer become that place of fellowship and energizing and strengthening and longing so that we can step out into the outer court, into the world, and be a witness and draw people into those processes of atonement and consecration and cleansing. And so we can say now, thanks be to God for Jesus, who has made an even clearer way through those same things, right? We talked about this last week with the law. Jesus doesn't step outside of the sacrificial system. He fulfills it. So Jesus has done here on the earth, once and for all, all of the things that were done in the outer court, which represented the earth, right? He's finished that for us. But the function is still the same. We still exist in the earth, in the place where we're meant to be called into the presence of God to be atoned for through the work of Jesus, cleansed by his blood, where we can step into the inner court and be filled with the Holy Spirit and find fellowship and worship and prayer. Now, I said the third point is that the, the tabernacle is for all the world, but, and I knew this was how it was working. You, you already see that, I hope. The tabernacle, the presence of God among his people, is not just for his people. It's for everybody. God isn't just interested in the Israelites. He isn't just interested in us. We are his precious sons and daughters, but so are all the people who don't know him yet. And we who know him are called to join him into his mission throughout the whole world. And this too is built into the structure. If you look for representations of Israel in the workings and structure of the tabernacle, you do find them, but they're all in the holy place. They're all in the inner court. It's the priest standing before God that stands in the place of Israel because that's what Israel was called to do, to be a nation of priests, right? A royal priesthood and a holy nation. And yes, they've shrunk from that call, but God is still fulfilling that. So Israel is symbolized on the breastplate of the high priest with the 12 gemstones, one for each tribe. And Israel is symbolized on the ephod of the high priest where there's two stones, two onyx stones, each carved with six of the names of the tribes of Israel. Because Israel is called to be the ones who are in the presence of God, but then come out into the outer court to the whole world, which is what's represented there. We have to understand the importance of this. We each are invited into the presence of God because he loves us. And he makes a way because of his grace and his compassion. And this is that gift, the gift of grace that we can come to him. We are called to enjoy the Lord, to fellowship with him, to pray to him, to walk with him. But you can't ever pull any of those things apart from God's mission in the world. 
He doesn't do that without an eye to all of the people around us who desperately need the same thing. And so we do come into his presence and we enjoy fellowship and worship and community and prayer, but we do that in conjunction with going out into the world and calling others to do the same. You come here on Sunday, the first day of the week, so that you can go out into the rest of your week ready. I love how Pam said that, that she, at the start of coming to church, Jean asked her why, and she said, I, I enjoy it, and my week goes better when I've been here. It's not, why, it's not to say, like, you won't have bad weeks. You will. But in terms of living the mission of God throughout your week, this is the best way to start. Come into his presence and fellowship and prayer. But not because this is the end. This is the beginning. You leave from here into the rest of the week. So what do you do with all this? Let's be really practical about applying this to us today. I don't do that every Sunday, and it's, it's on purpose, because sometimes I don't think that works. Um, but I think we've got some very clear lessons today. We start at the beginning. The tabernacle is from all the people. And that call to invest and to pay attention and to be reminded of these truths. We need to do the same. We need to give God our time, our energy, and our resources, both corporately and individually, in order to raise our eyes to Him. And there are two very practical ways we are asking that of you as a church today. One of them was from Christie's sharing in terms of the offering and the budget and the finances and the year-end and all of these kind of things. And I love the instructions that God gives. He says, tell them to give as their heart prompts them. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians. He's collecting to help a church that's in trouble in Jerusalem. And he says, each of you should give as you have decided in your hearts and do it joyfully. And that's the picture. The picture is like, God wants to dwell with us and we get to be a part of making that happen. So what do you want to give? Like, what do you want to make that? That's the picture in, in Exodus, and Paul picks up on that, and he wants our giving to be joyful. Um, I would ask the same, as your heart prompts you. I hope each of us are involved in, in regular giving for the ongoing work of the church. We often call that tithing, and if you came to the giving class, you'd have heard of it. you would have heard that already, and if you didn't, you want to hear about it, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, but in this case, I just want to say with Paul, give as your heart prompts you. Um, the other way we're very practically asking for investment is in the vision and values process. We're asking for your time and energy. We're asking for you to invest in the future of this church by being a part of the ongoing process of discernment through both prayer, and that's once a month, and when we get together and we hear from you, and that's once a month. And this week we're doing prayer. And those are just two ways. There's lots of others that you could do to invest, but those are two I would suggest and encourage and ask, because we're already asking. Um, from all the people, of the holy God of all creation, here we really clearly saw and see God's desire to be with us and his making a way. And what he wants is for us to join him in fellowship. And the picture is never of just me and God. That's, there's a place for that, and that's right, and that's good, but this is a community thing. And so I want to encourage you this week into fellowship. Pick someone you don't normally spend some time with in this church right now and go out for lunch with them. Ask them about how God has been at work in their life. Spend a little bit of time in the community learning from one another like we heard from Pam this morning about her story, right? We've all got stories like that of what God is doing. 
And we can all be encouraged if we give one another the time to do that. Now, you may not be able to do all three of the things I'm about to suggest this morning, but these are practical things that you can take one of. What's the last one? It's for all the world. From here, we head out into the world. From the holy place, the priests head out into the outer court to do for the people of God what God has commanded them to do. We are all in relationships with people who don't know the Lord who need that same kind of thing, someone to come alongside of them and, and serve them and bless them and speak truth to them and show them the love of God that God wants to be with them. And so the other thing you can do this week is to find a way to spend time, maybe a meal, maybe take someone out for lunch or whatever, but maybe a coffee or sit and talk with someone who doesn't yet know Jesus and listen to them and pray for them if you get the opportunity, and speak truth to them if you get the opportunity, with gentleness and respect and love, right? I'm not asking you to go out there with the evangelism shotgun and blow someone, blow someone away, okay? That's not how this works. Um, but in the same way that the priests are called to serve and to offer and to bring the prayers, we can do those things. So pick one or all of those things to follow up on with this week. And if you do, tell someone about it, because that's part of the fun about this, is that we get to share and enjoy together the fact that we all walk in the presence of the Lord each day, because we have a God who wants us to enter into his presence and who longs to dwell with us. So let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your goodness again. I thank you for your desire to be with us and to know us and for us to know you. And I pray that this week you would open our eyes and our ears, that you would draw us to paying attention, that we would see and hear and know and taste your goodness and your grace and your presence. I also pray that you would open the doors for us to speak and display those things to people who don't yet know you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.